0: The Conspiracy Podcast contains adult language, suggestive themes, sexual situations, and discussions of some pretty horrific events. Basically, all the good stuff. Thanks for listening. Saint manicotti, ominous orzo,
1: terrifying, terrifying tortellini,
0: gnarly Noki. terrifying tortellini, vicious vermicelli,
1: agonizing annelati,
0: spooky spaghetti, googly garganelli.
1: Welcome to Creepy Pasta.
2: Um, welcome to this extra special edition of Conspiracy. We are in the middle of a pandemic. Woo! Woo-hoo! <laughs> so, um, I'm I'm Katie.
1: Hello, if this is you from the year 2060 and you've just discovered our time vault because we've all been wiped <laughs> out, this is Elizabeth. <laughs>
0: Uh, if you're not
1: scare me, I can't. That was it. That's the only joke I can take. I can't do it anymore.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say, you, if you're a time traveler from a different, uh, from the future and you've come back to 2020 and you're hearing this, shoot us an email. Let us know
1: how it turns out. That's all. That's all. And also, yeah. I'm Renee. That's all. I mean, we know how it's gonna turn out. Just shoot us an email. You know what? Actually, why don't you just email the CDC and you let them know. <laughs> what we're using for the, for the vaccine and then let's just speed this up.
0: Okay. Yeah. Email Chad at Kroger.com or Chad Kroger at at (laughs) Nickelback.com. Chad at Kroger. (laughs) Um, yeah. So we're doing a super special episode where we're, we're all on Skype. Cause we're, cause we are responsible adults and we're quarantining.
1: Yes. Social distancing.
0: Well, I love you. I don't want to get y'all sick or vice versa. I could be a carrier and not even know it.
1: That's true. Same. I'm not a smoker, yeah. so I might not ever know. <laughs>
0: I could get Katie sick, and then Katie's gonna go to work and get somebody else sick, and then that person's gonna get somebody else sick, and then eventually they're gonna run into Jimmy Carter, and he's oh, gonna no. catch.
1: Stay away from Jimmy Carter. Everybody so we're doing to calm same. down and stay away from Stevie Wonder, because that's the yes. thing I'm trying to protect the most. <laughs> it's
0: bad oh. enough that
1: he's got Tom Hanks.
0: He can't. I know. Ooh, he Harvey can't. Weinstein got uh, tested positive.
1: Yeah. I breathed on that bitch myself.
0: <laughs> Harvey Weinstein and Rand Paul. So it's been a good day for coronavirus news. Well, damn. I... <laughs> Only because Rand Paul voted against the relief bill.
1: Friends, if you're listening to this next week and we're all still stuck in our houses, mm-hmm. just remember that washing your hands should happen all year long. Not just in a pandemic. Um, maybe don't mouth breathe on people ever. Not just in a pandemic. <laughs> okay? And if you can feel someone's breath, you're too close to them. Yeah. Okay? Let's leave the planet a little greener than we had it last year. Let's calm <laughs> down. Let's love each other from six feet apart and let's talk about some creepy pasta. I'm
2: just waiting, waiting to see. I have five more days to see if I caught something from the Earl. Oh,
1: God. You I'm... went to the Earl?
2: I went to the Earl last Friday. For what? A week and three days ago, uh, for the Black Lip show.
1: Oh, a week and three days. You're fine. They're saying young people, especially, you're only gonna take six days to show symptoms.
2: Oh, okay. Well, then it, yeah, I'm it tired.
1: switched from fourteen days to six days or whatever it was before, and now it's six days.
2: Oh, well, I'm sweet. which is
1: good. That means it's now. I just got to worry
2: about all the customers. I just I don't even so like I'm just dropping pizzas off at their car with gloves on too. And I wash my hands oh, up. Okay. I, I'm, I'm starting to get rashes on my hands from the latex
0: gloves and the washing of my hands.
1: That's my okay. popular demand, is creepiest of pastas. And I promise, no zero cryptid porn this time. Damn zero. It. I already took my pants off.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. But, you know, I can't be predictable. Okay. This story is called, Did This Religious TV Program Contain a Deadly Hidden Message? And this is an Atlanta thing? Yes. Yes. Wait, say that title again? Did This Religious TV Program Contain a Deadly Hidden Message? Okay. So this is about a locally produced television program known as Words of Light with the Reverend Marley Sachs. The show aired every Sunday from 6 to 7 a.m. on WSB TV in Atlanta, Georgia from October 18th, 1987 to Sunday, February 14th, whereupon the show was canceled abruptly without explanation. Um, This one guy claims to have access to details provided by a former intern at WSB. Mm. So, this this in turn tells a ghastly, nightmarish story about something he found on taped episodes of Words of Light, details of which he claims to be connected to a series of officially unexplained deaths in Georgia that occurred during the the show's brief run. Bizarrely, these particular fatalities all involved women who were pregnant at the time. But, yeah, but first, a little background on the show itself. There is little to distinguish uh, Reverend Marley Sachs show from any number of locally produced Sunday morning religious programs. The set was a simple stage with a clear acrylic podium behind which Sachs, an older man with a bland stage presence, would stand and read scripture passages, then step forward to offer his interpretations of their relevance to modern life. Oddly enough, while most programs like these were broadcast on behalf of a local church, Sachs did not seem to be affiliated with any particular ministry and he never made appeals for donations. Excuse me. A telephone number did appear at the bottom of the screen at regular intervals, but the Reverend only made occasional references to it and then only asking for prayer requests. Calls to the line were never played on the show. Nevertheless, the program maintained a modest following and garnered enough advertising that the station opted to keep it on the air for a while. But according to the intern, beginning in December, they began to receive a growing wave of complaint calls. Uh, There were several details in common among the viewers claimed to experience physical discomfort while watching the program, including intense headaches, blurred vision, dizziness, and nausea. Second, the callers reportedly experienced their most intense symptoms each time the telephone number was superimposed on the screen, every 12 minutes to be exact. Oh my. The third factor is the most disturbing. All of the callers were women. So the studio manager at the time directed the small TV crew to assess their equipment to determine if something in the signal itself might be triggering physical sensations, much like those caused by an ultrasound or infrasound frequencies known for their damaging effects on the human body but after an exhaustive shakedown no such frequencies were detected and no other technical issues were found when reverend Sachs himself was alerted to the issue his response was dismissive some people just can't handle the word of god but complaint calls continued and viewership began to drop sharply with each passing week Finally, the station canceled the show after the February 14th, 1988 broadcast, and Sachs disappeared from the public eye virtually overnight. But, the story doesn't end there. In fact, the horror had been growing all along. Oh. So, the cancellation of Sachs' show occurred at the height of a disturbing miscarriage epidemic affecting hundreds of women in the Atlanta metropolitan area. A what? what?
1: How? A what?
0: Yes. A miscarriage a epidemic. <laughs> Widespread reports of failed pregnancies had first made news in November 1987, and by January 1988, the number of miscarriages in Atlanta had exceeded 300. The CDC oh conducted an trans- investigation of these incidents, but the results were inconclusive and no official cause has ever been documented.
1: What the hell? But incidents may hold
0: a bizarre and terrifying cru- <laughs> clue to the puzzle. Assigned in 1988. Uh, 1989 to search WSB's tape library for stock footage to accompany a feature about the station's history the intern found archived episodes of Words of Light and made a shocking discovery after pressing play on the first tape he realized the button on the old clunky studio VTR was stuck and wouldn't shut off he finally managed to pry it up with a screwdriver whereupon the picture slipped back a few seconds finally freezing at time code uh, 1.13 What Uh-oh. he saw in he his heart Skip a beat A single frame image of a partially decomposed Human head <gasps> You oh guys can see that? I
2: can't see anything Because you're not here anymore oh. oh
1: my gosh Okay well imagine Yay.
0: a partially decomposed human head
1: Um Looking like After
0: we- Send it to <laughs> me Just send it to me through text
1: Okay. God. You guys, this
0: is a 2020 episode for you. Oh, <laughs> send me a test. Can you oh, hear my laptop that saying? Strange. That was causing people to just freak the fuck out? Like, have oh, After regaining his composure, the intern convinced himself the image was either some kind of bizarre glitch, or perhaps a macabre joke perpetuated by a bored editor at the station. But as he scanned through the tape, he found the same image again, precisely 12 minutes later, just after the superimposed telephone number disappeared from the screen determined to get to the bottom of this anomaly the intern asked one of the studio technicians to help him go through additional tapes of the show and they found to their mutual horror that the gruesome single frame image appeared on every single episode and always at 12 minute intervals but further examination revealed it wasn't exactly the same image each time. They realized, as the show progressed, that the head was slightly different in each subsequent episode. And with each new episode, it seemed to be in a more advanced state of decay. The tech analyzed the anomaly closely and could not find any evidence of post-production tampering. The video timecode did not jump, and the audio-visual signal did not vary in the slightest when the grotesque image appeared on screen. When the pair brought their findings to the attention of the station manager, they were promptly instructed to erase the tapes, effectively destroying all evidence of this frightening anomaly, what? in the hope that the would simply go away. After all, the program had been off the air for more than a year. But oh the industry was obsessed God. with solving the mystery and secretly dubbed copies of the tapes before they were destroyed. Spending most of his spare time on the project, the intern managed to isolate each individual frame of the grizzly image and roughly edit- edited them together to determine if they were consecutive frames of a time-lapse film, hoping it would it might reveal further clues as to its origin. What he found, however, was something even more disturbing. When played forward at normal speed, it appeared that the rotting head was talking.
1: And uh-uh.
0: Can you see that, Liz?
1: Move it to your right. Yes. Oh, shit. Start it over. To your right, a little.
2: (gasps) Just text it to me. I can't see it. (laughs) Ah!
0: Yeah, it's real creepy. I don't know if I can text it to you, because it's a video, and it's not like a YouTube video. Yeah, I'll just send you the page link. Um, When the intern brought his horrific findings to the studio tech, it triggered a similar reaction. But instead of bringing this newfound evidence to the manager, the tech concluded the issue was better left alone for fear he may lose his job. This was distressing news to the intern, who finally decided he would present the dubbed tapes to the police in the hope that it might touch off an investigation. But he never got the chance. Mm. Days later, Atlanta police responded to a late-night 911 call from an elderly woman who reported the sound of horrible screams coming from the house next door where a young married couple lived. When responders arrived at the scene, they found the front door open and all the lights off. Just inside the living room, they discovered the still-warm corpse of a young pregnant woman. Her abdomen had been torn open with a jagged (gasps) imprint and a trail of flat... A trail of fresh blood and a trail of fresh blood led from the gaping wound to the nearby couch. There they found the dead woman's husband, the intern at the TV station, (gasps) sitting naked on the couch, staring blankly at the screen, watching the time-lapse video of the severed head, which seemed to be on a recurring loop. The man was mumbling something that roughly matched the silently moving mouth of the rotting head on the video. The light of God calls them. On the man's lap, next to a blood slicked piece of ragged metal, was the tiny, motionless body of his wife's unborn child.
2: The end. Thank you, Renee. That was beautiful.
0: Like so you know weird. what? I
1: think I'm having an internet connection problem. Uh, I yeah, think yeah. I gotta go. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god.
0: <laughs> Katie did you have to go get a blanket no I had to get my <laughs> neck pillow
1: <laughs> um, Katie, I can tell you right now when this is all over Katie's gonna be like um actually do we work from home I have my <laughs> neck pillow there <laughs> <laughs> this is very
2: true um, Yeah, actually, that's that's, it. that's terrifying
1: yeah that was wild this is true? No, this isn't true. Or is it? Or I don't know. Oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god. Oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god. Oh god.
0: I'm Katie, it's, it's fine. It's like 30 years ago.
1: Who's here? A miscarriage epidemic. a Just yeah. like those words at the same time make me icky.
0: Yeah. What do you have for us, Liz? Oh, what's well, your first? One?
1: The first one I'm gonna start with. Um, some of you, if you are creepy pasta heads, um, some of you listening may know this one. I heard it the first time probably like two years ago, um, and I literally never stopped thinking about it. So I figured that now would be a good time. Um, last time I brought you the Black Eyed Children. And this time, I will bring you a diner open 25 hours a day.
0: I think this is one of those that I've always meant to read, but I never have.
1: All right. So I'm going to be reading this uh, from the author. Um, I got this from creepypasta.com. So, obviously, I didn't write this, and so I'll be reading it from the point of view like it was me, okay? Just want to get that all out there. I did not write this. Okay. Late one night, I found myself driving down what seemed like an endless stretch of road. I was on my way back from a week-long business trip, facing at least a 12-hour drive home. Having always been afraid of flying... The monotonous trek was unavoidable, though tedious and sometimes downright soul-crushing. In an effort to minimize my commute, I usually refrained from making pit stops. I would push through exhaustion and discomfort, making my way home in one fell swoop. Like an idiot, by the way. (laughs) Just a side note, that's terrible. I love stopping on trips. I would then enter my bedroom and meet my blankets with a hard thud, falling asleep almost immediately after my head hit the pillow. Picturing my eventual slumber is what always keeps my foot on the gas pedal. On this drive, however, I got particularly hungry. I tried to ignore the feeling, but this became increasingly difficult as the night went on. I found myself longing for sustenance, fantasizing about dreadful gas station food. Anything that would placate my insatiable late-night hunger. I was between a rock and a hard place. Unable to fight off the urge to eat any longer, I gave in to my stomach's groaning and got off the highway somewhere in Massachusetts. I had been to the state on several occasions, but this time I was in unfamiliar territory. There were many trees, more than the average Cape side town. On top of that, there were no buildings in sight. Despite the lack of residential growth, I was sure I could sniff out a 7-Eleven and indulge in a microwave burrito or a slice of rubbery pizza. I drove Hmm. on for what must have been 30 minutes. No gas stations, no fast food joints, no buildings of any kind. I was just miles and miles of wooded area. Worst of all, I did not have a phone signal to pull up my GPS. I was just about to give up on operation midnight snack when i saw a faint glow off in the distance this signaled me that i must have been reaching the outskirts of civilization or your death by the way furthermore it meant nourishment was just around the corner as i approached the glimmering light i realized it was that of a large neon sign coming closer i was able to make out what it said supernova diner Followed by an even larger subheading, open 25 hours a day. I guessed that they really wanted to drive the We Never Close angle home, and this was Mm -hmm. a cheeky way to do it. Cheekier and larger still, there is a big flashing arrow beneath the sign, pointing to the diner in question. As hungry as ever, I pulled in without hesitation. I jumped out of my car and rushed towards the entrance. But not before taking a quick look at the place It was a beautiful Retro themed silver boxcar diner The smooth metal exterior Gleamed in the moonlight as I walked up It was so sleek and well crafted That I wondered why it was located In literally the middle of nowhere Hmm. Could they really be getting any business? After admiring The diner's craftsmanship I barged in intent on satisfying My late night case of the munchies The diner was void of life but I heard a voice yell out from the kitchen. Be right there. Mm. While I waited for service, I surveyed my surroundings. A gorgeous red checkerboard pattern painted the interior of the building. Lining the perimeter were red booths and tables so immaculate, they looked as though they'd never been touched by human hands. To top it all off, there was a row of similarly red, identical cushioned bar stools at the counter. The diner definitely had a classic 50s vibe to it, but it was too crisp and clean to feel authentic. After a few minutes of waiting, a middle-aged man came out from the kitchen, drying his hands with a dish rag. Hello there, welcome to the Supernova Diner. My name is Hank, and I'll be your server tonight. How can I help you? He wore a retro soda jerk cap, a comically large bow tie, a spotless white apron, and a smile too wide for his face. He pointed up at the large menu on the wall behind him where I noticed quirky food items like the Milky Way Shake, Galaxy, Sliders, and Planet Fries. Uh, Yeah, I'll have whatever the special is. I didn't feel like asking him to translate the menu for me. I didn't really care what I was eating so long as my stomach stopped growling. Mm. Okay, the Nebula Express coming right up. Hank shot me another awkwardly wide, too wide smile. To escape his eager glare, I pulled out my phone and glanced at the screen. Still no signal, but I noticed that it was approaching midnight. I groaned a bit, knowing that my detour had cost me a swift return home. Still, I knew I couldn't ignore my biological needs any longer. I put my phone in my pocket and looked back up at the counter. Hank was still there with the same smile on his face. Uh, shouldn't you be putting in my order? He didn't react to my query. Instead, he remained silent and motionless. Okay, then. I'm just gonna leave. Bye. Just as I turned to head to the door, Hank spoke up. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Why is that? I asked. Well, it would be a waste of time. I turned back and glared at him. What are you talking about? Are you gonna get my food or not? He laughed. You can't leave now. The fun is just about to begin. Your order is being prepared as we speak. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. (coughs) Hank pulled out a stopwatch from his apron. The digital readout appeared to be counting backwards from an hour. That's weird. I didn't know if it was a restaurant gimmick or a strange prank at my expense, but either way, I was fed up. Well, bye, Hank. It's been weird. Thanks for nothing. (laughs) I turned around and continued marching towards the exit. As I did this, my jaw dropped. The door was gone. My eyes quickly darted from left to right, revealing to me that the windows had vanished as well. There was nothing but continuous walls on either side of me. Perplexed, I looked back at Hank. He chuckled to himself and then asked me a question. How would you like your steak cooked? What? I asked. Your meat. How do you like it? Um Well done. I like it well done. Which is a rookie order, but that's fine. Hmm. And then he said, well done, huh? I like my meat as red as possible. A little color does the body good. I looked at him confused. Hank, where's the door? Well, let's just say it's temporarily unavailable. Anything else I can help you with? Um, yeah, what the hell is going on here? Well, there are a number of possibilities. I've outlined them here on the menu. Hank pointed up at the menu again, only this time all of those quirky food items were gone. The letters have seemingly been rearranged to form bullet points and numbered one to three. I read them out loud. Number one, during your business trip, one of your colleagues slipped you some LSD as part of a half-hearted practical joke. What you are experiencing now is as a product of the drug's potent hallucinogenic properties. I like that one, Hank said. Unlikely, but it's fun, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I moved on to the next possibility. Two, you fell asleep at the wheel. This is merely a vivid dream that will continue until you inevitably crash your car and die on impact. Alternatively, you may have already crashed your car and lived, albeit barely. You are currently in a coma, and your sleeping mind has formed a narrative based on the hunger you felt before the accident. The diner is a metaphor for the coma itself, and you won't escape until you awaken, which may very well be never. This one bored Hank. A little morbid, but it's possible. I reluctantly looked at the last option. Three. Something supernatural is afoot. Mysterious forces beyond your comprehension are at play, trapping you in an otherwise normal eatery. These forces will not allow you to leave under any circumstances. The best thing you can do is accept this and allow yourself to succumb to whatever classic paranormal tropes are thrown your way. Death will be your only escape. That's all I could come up with, Hank said. I'm not sure myself, but I'm leaning towards number three. What the fuck is wrong with Hank? He said, (laughs) what the hell, Hank? What the fuck is this? And shouldn't you, of all people, know? Well, you would think so, wouldn't you? But I guess I just wouldn't tell you if I did. Where's the fun in that? He offered me another one of his smiles as a consolation. I wanted to punch it clean off his face. Mm -hmm. Instead, I partook in a nervous breakdown of sorts. I slammed my body up against the wall where the door had been. I screamed at the top of my lungs, and I even grabbed a few barstools and tossed them in different directions, as hard as my arms would allow. All the while, Hank remained calm and still, his lips stretched from ear to ear in the same smile. Just as I was about to take a swing at him, the kitchen door behind him popped open. Oh, your order must be ready. Please come with me. Hank disappeared into the darkness beyond the kitchen's doorframe. I stayed behind, hesitant to follow him. After a few moments, I heard him yell out to me, Come on, aren't you hungry? It's true, I was hungry, but I was so cautious, especially given my peculiar situation. Because of this, I sat down in one of the booths and waited. I didn't know what I was waiting for exactly, but it was all I could bring myself to do. You can't wait out there forever. As if in response to his statement, the lights in the diner began to flicker. One by one, they went out, spreading darkness from booth to booth. Eventually, I was left with just one bulb above me, wavering in and out of life. It provided me with just enough light (laughs) to make my way to the kitchen, and Hank knew it. I had two choices, go into the dark kitchen, or let the bulb go out and sit in the dark diner. Um, no thanks. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Neither option was ideal, but deep down I knew I only had one that had a potential to lead me to an answer. As such, I gave in to the narrative that was unfolding around me. It was clear to me at this point that fighting was futile. I passed the threshold into the kitchen, and the door shut itself behind me. Bright light poured out from the ceiling, washing over the entire room, revealing vibrant white walls and flooring. In the center of the room was a chair, slanted in a diagonal position, not unlike one you'd find in the dentist's office. Next to the chair was Hank, who had traded in his diner uniform for a lab coat. Come sit down, take a load off. If only out of fear for what might happen next if I disobeyed, I did as what he told me. It's not like I had much choice. I slowly walked over to the chair and laid down. As I did this, leather straps wrapped themselves around my legs, arms, and forehead. I no longer had the luxury of movement or peripheral vision. Hank walked around to the front of the chair and pulled out his stopwatch. You're doing fine, kid. Only 40 mm. minutes left.
2: 40 minutes?
1: Without warning, six or seven shadowy figures came rushing over from either side of me. They brought with them rolling carts filled with what looked like medical equipment and power tools. I tried to make out even a single face in the crowd, but I couldn't. They lacked any kind of discernible feature of any kind and moved about in perfect harmony with one another like animated silhouettes doing the bidding of some unseen higher power. Over the course of the next few minutes, the figures poked and prodded me, drew blood, took hair samples, and inserted their utensils in places I would rather not discuss. As much as I squirmed and screamed, none of them reacted. They never blinked, not even Hank. Feeling helpless, I eventually stopped struggling and simply braced myself for each needle. After a while, the figures stopped. Instead of going away like I hoped they would, they traded their needles and test tubes for surgical scissors and began cutting my clothes off of me. This continued until I was completely naked. I tried talking to Hank, but he was too busy playing and tasting the samples that had been collected. Oh, I don't even like if Hank. he did respond. No amount of encouragement could have prepared me for what happened next. Using nothing but scalpels and strength, the figures began cutting away at my skin. It was an absolutely horrific orchestra of deadly incisions, and one that continued until they peeled off every last bit of my epidermis. For one reason or another, I remained both alive and awake during the entire ordeal. Though at the time, I wish I could have died. Oh, The pain was excruciating and came in waves, and just when I thought I was going numb, another unbearable, sharp, throbbing sensation would overtake my entire body. By the end of it, my ears were ringing from the volume of my own screams. There's that color, Hank exclaimed, gazing at the bloody mess that I had become. Why are you doing this? I yelled. I'm not doing anything, kid. I'm just here to observe. Relax. Only twenty-seven minutes left.
2: "Well, that took thirteen minutes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's really fast math. <laughs> I was a music major, so that's, like, wildly. <laughs> okay. Um, I would have argued with him further, but the figures grabbed the power tools and started tearing through my muscle tissue. <clears throat> the buzzing sound of saws filled the room, drowning out my cries of agony. Through blood-soaked eyes, I could see Hank mouthing the words tick-tock, tick-tock over and over again. I watched him mock me until the buzzing stopped. I never wanted to see my organs. I never wanted to see my bones. I could have gone my whole life without knowing what I looked like. Now I can't get the image of them out of my head. I'm afraid I never will. After successfully ripping apart my skin and muscles, the shadowy demons took hammers to my insides, smashing up my spleen, stomach, liver, kidneys, and lungs. They broke through the brittle white ivory that made up my skeleton, making sure to leave no bone unturned. They even destroyed my skull and scooped my brain matter into jars.
2: What is happening?
1: After all that was said and done, they cleaned up my remains like fallen hair in a barber shop and left. You're probably wondering how I lived. I'm not entirely sure. They stripped away every physical aspect of my being, but I was still there. A sort of bubble of floating consciousness. I could still see and hear, but I was without a material body. As jarring as that realization was, I was just happy to no longer be in pain. I didn't realize it, but Hank was still in the room. He walked over to me and leaned in real close, in hand. See, now that wasn't so bad, was it? And looky here, you only got 18 minutes left. How will you spend them? What will you see? We had our fun. Now it's your turn. What? Hank turned around and walked out the kitchen door, leaving me alone in the white room. Within an instant, things began to change around me. The walls, floor, and ceiling faded, revealing an array of distant stars behind them. I somehow went from being in a diner on planet Earth to floating around in a vacuum of space within mere moments. Within seconds of the room completely fading from view, I was unwillingly hurled through the universe at light speed. Everything around me blurred, and my bodiless soul spun around uncontrollably. If I still had a stomach, it would have been turning. I'll never forget what I experienced in the coming moments, but I'll never fully remember it. If now, I only have access to bits and pieces of what happened. Perhaps the extreme velocity in which I traveled somehow damaged the fragile fabric of my memory. Or maybe my feeble mind just couldn't process the imagery. Who knows? In truth, I can only tell you what I felt. That will never go away. As I sped through deep space, I was stopped in specific locations, mostly foreign planets and dead star systems. In these moments, I saw unspeakable things, gruesome things, things I never knew could exist in the universe. I was plagued with disturbing sights and concepts of horrific proportions. So horrendous, in fact, it made my impromptu autopsy look tame in comparison. I don't know exactly what it was I saw out there, but I still feel an immense dread whenever I look at the sky. After what felt like an eternity of torture, I was transported to what I can only assume was a location outside of the observable universe. There were no stars or any light to speak of, not even off in the distance. I was alone in a blanket of darkness, left to suffer with the memories of what I endured. Just as I was beginning to accept my circumstances, a light glow appeared in the distance. As it came closer to my position, I recognized its features. It was Hank. The readout was approaching 0, 10, 9, 8. I started to feel weary, almost like I was falling into a deep sleep. I wondered if that was even possible. 7, 6, 5. Like a projected movie, the past hour of my life appeared on the blank canvas of space behind the stopwatch. It played in reverse at high speed, like a VHS tape stuck on rewind. 4, 3... Two. Feeling faint, I tried to focus on the imagery. I relived everything that happened to me in the diner within mere seconds. One. Mm -hmm. Just like that, I was in the diner parking lot, body and flesh intact. My car was there next to me, right where I parked it. I took out my phone and checked the time. It was 12.01. Everything had returned to normal, to the way it was before. I jumped into my car and started it up. I was about to drive out of there like a bat out of hell, but I decided to take one look at the diner. Somehow its walls, within its walls, there does exist an extra hour in the day. How that's possible and what its purpose is, I can't be certain. Maybe Hank was right and that third scenario had something to do with it. The only thing I know is that I survived and I won't be making another pit stop anytime soon, no matter how hungry I may be. Just then before my eyes, the diner disappeared and I was in my car. Driving again.
2: So so the moral of the story is eat the quick trip food?
1: The yes. moral of the story is quick trip pizza slaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's before the story, okay? I live for quick trip pepperoni. That was a wild ride.
0: Yeah. Uh yeah. I don't know how I feel about that, except, like, not good.
1: I know. When you read it, and, like, it starts changing on you, you're like, oh my god, this is so hard to follow, like, there's no way, this is, like, whatever, how does this scare mm-hmm. people? A diner, wow, torture, wow. But then somehow, like, it's fucking wild at the end.
0: It's fucking weird.
1: Yeah, and, like, the countdown, <laughs> yeah. and then the diner's just <laughs> gone. I'm uncomfortable. Like, you, basically, he <laughs> lost an hour. To, yeah. Like. One hour. Wild.
0: Mm. Wild. Yeah. Basically, you can just never look into space or go to sleep ever again. So, I am going to do a repeat of the same creepy
2: pasta I did last time. We just do part six. The last part uh, of Pin Pal.
1: Which I think was the fan favorite. It's mm. such a
2: good... And that's the reason I want to do it. I want to read it again. Or Read this part because when I listened yeah. to it after that episode, I was like, Holy shit, I forgot about how crazy the ending is.
1: The ending, yeah, our was... listeners like thrived, they were like living for Pen Pal. It's when so they
0: told me that they didn't live for the Chupacabra porn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I will say that they just really like Pen Pal. One, one of my friends, it's Bethany a great story. She, uh, went and listened to the entire thing on the No Sleep podcast, like, as soon as she got off our episode, because she literally couldn't stop. And then my friend Tyler, um, he went and, like, looked up and read the whole thing, and he, like, read it to his mom, and she was, like, sobbing uncontrollably, he said.
2: <laughs> it's a fucking crazy sad story. I know. Look like what you have done, Katie.
1: So yeah. ready. Yeah. We're all ready right. for this jelly.
2: Which, yeah, spoiler, if you haven't listened to it and you don't just want to skip straight to the ending, I mean, you can listen to my version, too. It's fine. The No Sleep podcast is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the original author of Pin Pal is Dathan Auerbach. All right, so part six of Pin Pal. Buckle up. On the first day of kindergarten, my mother had elected to drive me to school. We were both nervous, and she wanted to be there with me the, all the way up to the moment I walked into class. It took me a bit longer to get ready in the morning due to my still-mending arm. The cast came up a couple inches past my elbow, which meant that I had to cover the entire arm with a specially designed latex bag when I showered. The bag was built to pull tight around the opening in order to seal out any water that might otherwise destroy the cast. I had gotten really adept at cinching the bag myself. That morning, however, perhaps due to my excitement or nervousness, I hadn't pulled the strap tight enough, and halfway through the shower, I could feel water pooling inside the bag around my fingers. I jumped out and tore the latex shield away, but could feel that the previously rigid plaster had become soft after absorbing the water. Because there is no way to effectively clean the area between your body and a cast, the dead skin that would normally have fallen away merely sits there. Ew. (laughs) When stirred by moisture like sweat, it emits an odor, and apparently this odor is proportionate to the amount of moisture introduced. (laughs) Because soon after I began attempting to dry it, I was struck by the powerful stench of rot. As I continued to frantically rub it with a towel, it began to disintegrate. I was growing increasingly distressed. I had put as much effort as a child could into his very first day of school. I had sat with my mom picking out my clothes the night before. I had spent a great deal of time picking out my backpack, and I had become exceedingly excited to show everyone my lunchbox that had Ninja Turtles on it. I had fallen into my mom's habit of calling these children I hadn't yet met my friends already. But, as the condition of my cast worsened, I became deeply upset at the thought that surely I wouldn't be able to apply that label to anyone by the time this day was over. To feed it, I showed my mom. Which, he's going into kindergarten. He's very stressed about kindergarten. <laughs> he really is. I
1: feel like Renee was like that, though.
2: <laughs> like me, I was just like, Whatever. <laughs> Okay. It took 30 <laughs> minutes. It took 30 minutes to get most of the moisture out while working to preserve the rest of the cast. To address the problem of the smell, my mom cut slivers of off a bar of soap and slid them down into the cast and then rubbed the remainder of the soap on the outside in an in an attempt to cocoon the rancid smell inside of a more pleasant one. By the time we arrived at the school, my classmates were already engaged in their second activity and I was shoehorned into one of the groups. I wasn't made very clear on what the guidelines of the activity were, and within about five minutes, I had violated the rules so badly that each member of the group complained to the teacher and asked why I had to be in their group. These kids are awful. What meanies? I hate them. I had brought a marker to school in hopes that I could collect some signatures or drawings on my cast next to my mother's, and I suddenly felt very foolish for for having even put the marker in my pocket that morning. Kindergarteners had the lunchroom to themselves at my elementary school, but some of the tables were off-limits, so I didn't have to sit alone. I was self-consciously picking at the fraying ends of my cast when a kid sat across from me. I like your lunchbox, he said. I could tell he was making fun of me, and I grew really angry. In my mind, that lunchbox was the last good thing about my day. I didn't look up from my arm, and I felt a burning in my eyes from the tears that I was holding back. I looked up to tell the kid to leave me alone. But before I could get the words out, I saw something that made me pause. He had the exact same lunchbox. I laughed. I like your lunchbox, too. I think Michelangelo is the coolest, he said, while mimicking nunchuck moves. It's my life every day right now, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I have played so much Ninja Turtle, it's not even funny.
1: Everyone knows Raphael's the best. I didn't know there was a right and
2: wrong way to play, by the way. Just throw that out there.
0: Oh, yeah, the right way to play is to beat the foot soldiers.
2: I sometimes mix up Ninja Turtles in Star Wars, so I bring a lightsaber in sometimes and I get yelled at.
0: Just say it's uh... <gasps> uh
2: Anyways, back to the story. Before we get deep into it. I was in the middle of rebutting by saying that Raphael was my favorite when he knocked his open carton of milk off the table and onto his lap. I tried very hard to stifle my laughter since I didn't know him at all. But the struggling look on my face must have struck him as funny because he started laughing first. Suddenly, I didn't feel so bad about my cast and thought that this person would hardly notice anyway. Just then, I thought to try my luck. Hey, do you want to sign my cast? As I pulled out the marker, he asked me how I broke it. I told him that I fell out of the tallest tree in my neighborhood. He seemed impressed. I watched him laboriously draw his name, and when he was done, I asked him what it said. He told me it said Josh. Josh and I lunched together every day, and whenever we could, we partnered up for projects. I helped him with his handwriting, and he took the blame when I wrote FART on the wall in permanent market.
1: <laughs>
2: Jeez. I would come to know other kids, but I think I knew even that Josh was my only real friend. Moving a friendship outside of school when you are five years old is actually more difficult than most remember. The day we launched our balloons, we had such a good time that I asked Josh if he wanted to come to my house the next day to play. He said he did and that he'd bring some of his toys. I said that we could also go exploring and maybe swim in the lake. When I got home, I asked my mom and she said it would be fine. My enthusiasm was boundless until I realized I had no way of contacting Josh to tell him. I spent the whole weekend worrying that our friendship would be dissolved by Monday. Oh, the only thing you have to worry about when you're five years old. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: When I saw him after the weekend, I was relieved to find that he had run into the same obstacle and thought it was funny. Later that week, we both remembered to write down our phone numbers at home and then exchange them at school. My mom spoke with Josh's dad, and it was decided that my mom would pick up Josh and myself from school that Friday. We alternated this basic structure nearly every weekend. The fact that we lived so close made things much easier on our parents, who seemed to work constantly. When my mom and I moved across the city at the end of first grade, I was sure that our friendship had seen its last day. As we drove away from the house I had lived in my whole life, I felt a sadness that I knew wasn't just about a house. I was saying goodbye to my friend forever. But Josh and I, to my surprise and delight, stayed close. Despite the fact that we spent the majority of our time apart and only saw one another on weekends, we remained remarkably similar as we grew. Our personalities coalesced, our senses of humor complemented each other's, and we would often find that we had started liking new things independently. We even sounded enough alike that when I stayed with Josh, he would sometimes call my mom pretending to be me. His success rate was impressive. Mm -hmm. My mom would sometimes joke that the only way she could tell us apart sometimes was by our hair. He had straight, dirty blonde hair like his sister, while I had curly, dark brown hair like my mother. One would think that the thing most likely to drive two young friends apart would be what's out of their control. However, I think the catalyst of our gradual disengagement was my insistence that we sneak out to my old house to look for boxes. The next weekend, I invited Josh over to my house, in keeping with our tradition of alternating houses, but he said that he wasn't really feeling up to it. We started seeing progressively less of one another over the next year or so. It had gone from once a week to once a month to once every couple months. For my 12th birthday, my mom threw me a party. I hadn't made that many friends since we'd moved, so it wasn't a surprise party since my mom had no idea who to invite. I told a handful of kids I'd become acquainted with and called Josh to see if he wanted to come. Originally, he said that he didn't think he could make it, but the day before the party, he called me to say that he'd be there. I was really excited because I hadn't seen him in several months. The party went pretty well. My biggest concern was that Josh and the other kids wouldn't get along, but that seemed, but they seemed to like each other well enough. Josh was surprisingly quiet. He hadn't brought me a gift and apologized for that, but I told him it wasn't a big deal. I was just glad that he was able to make it. I tried to start several conversations with him, but they seemed to keep reaching dead ends. I asked him what was wrong. I told him that I didn't get why things had become so awkward between us. They were never like that before. We used to hang out almost every weekend and talk on the phone every couple days. I asked him what happened to us. He looked up from staring at his shoes and just said, you left. Just after he said that, my mom yelled in from the other room that it was time to open presents. I forced a smile and walked into the dining room as they sang happy birthday. There were a couple of wrapped boxes and a lot of cards since most of my extended family lived outside of state. Most of the gifts were silly and forgettable, but I remember that Brian gave me a Mighty Max toy shaped like a snake that I kept for years afterwards. My mom was insistent that I open all the cards that had been brought and thank each person who had given one. Mm -hmm. Several years before Christmas, I had torn through the wrapping paper and envelopes with such fervor that I had destroyed any possibility of discerning who had sent which gift or what amount of money. We separated the ones that had been sent by Mel and the other ones that had been brought th- that day so my friends wouldn't have to sit through me opening cards from people they had never met. One of the cards for my friends had a couple dollars in them, and the ones for my family members contained larger bills. One envelope didn't have my name written on it, but it was in the pile, so I opened it. The card had a generic floral pattern on its face and seemed to be a card that had been received by someone else who was now recycling it for my birthday because it was actually a little dingy. I actually appreciated the idea that it was reused, since I'd always thought the cards were silly. I angled it so that the money wouldn't fall to the floor when I opened it, but the only thing inside was the message that had come printed in the card. I love you. <laughs> Whoever had given me this card hadn't written anything in it, but they had circled the message in pencil a couple times. Oh. I chuckled a little and said, gee, thanks for the awesome card, Mom. She looked at me quizzically and then turned her attention to the card. She told me it wasn't from her and seemed amused as she showed my friends, looking at their faces, trying to discern who had played the joke. None of the kids stepped forward, so my mom said, Don't worry, sweetheart, at least you know now that two people love you. She followed that with an extremely prolonged and excruciating kiss on my forehead that transformed the group's bewilderment into hysteria. They were all laughing, so it could have been any of them, but Mike seemed to be laughing the hardest. To become a participant rather than the subject of the gag, I said to him that just because he had given me the card, he shouldn't think that I'd kiss him later. We all laughed, and as I looked at Josh, I saw he was finally smiling. Well, I think that gift might be the winner, but you have a couple more to open. My mom slid another present in front of me. I was still feeling the tremors of suppressed chuckles in my abdomen as I tore the colorful paper away. When I saw the gift, I had no idea I had no need to suppress the laughter anymore. My smile dropped as I looked at what I'd been given. It was a pair of walkie-talkies. Well, go on, show everyone. I held them up, and everyone seemed to approve. But as I drew my attention to Josh, I could see that he had turned a sickly shade of white. We locked eyes for a moment, and then he turned and walked into the kitchen.
1: Mm.
2: As I watched Mm -hmm. him dial a number on the cord. Corded phone attached to the wall, my mom whispered in my ear that she knew that Josh and I didn't talk as much since one of the walkie-talkies had broken. So, she thought I'd like it. Mm-hmm. I was filled with an intense appreciation for my mom's thoughtfulness, but this feeling was easily overpowered by the emotions resurrected by the returning memories I tried so hard to bury. When everyone was eating cake, I asked Josh who he had called. He told me he wasn't feeling well, so he called his dad to come and get him. I understand that he wanted to leave, but I told him I wish we could hang out more. I extended one of the walkie-talkies to him, but he put his hand up in refusal. I said, well, thanks for coming, I guess. I hope I'll see you before my next birthday. I'm sorry. I'll try to call you back more often. I really will, he said. The conversation stagnated as we waited by my door for his dad. I looked at his face. Josh seemed genuinely remorseful that he hadn't made more of an effort. His mood seemed suddenly boistered by an idea that had struck him. He told me that he knew what what he'd get me for my birthday. It would take a while, but he thought that I would really like it. I told him it wasn't a big deal, but he insisted. He seemed in better spirits and apologized for being such a drag at my party. He said that he was tired, that he hadn't been sleeping well. I asked him why that was as he opened the door in response to his dad's honking in the driveway. He turned back toward me and waved goodbye as he answered my question. I think I've been sleepwalking. That was the last time I saw my friend, and a couple oh. months later, he was gone. Over the past several weeks, the relationship between my mother and I had grown increasing, stra- increasing strained. Oh, my God. And again. Over the past several weeks, the relationship between my mother and I was growing increasingly strained due to my attempts to learn the details of my childhood. It's often the case that one cannot know the breaking point of a thing until that thing fractures. And after the last conversation with my mother, I imagine that we will spend the rest of our lives attempting to repair what had taken a lifetime to build. She had put so much energy into keeping me safe, both physically and psychologically, but I think that the walls meant to insulate me from harm were also protecting her emotional stability. As the truth came pouring out the last time we spoke, I could hear a trembling in her voice that I think was a reverberation of the collapse of her world. I don't imagine my mother and I will talk very much anymore, and while there are still some things I don't understand, I think I know enough. After Josh disappeared, his parents had done all they could to find him. From the very first day, the police had suggested that they contact all of Josh's friends' parents to see if he was with them. They did this, Mm -hmm. of course, but no one had seen him or had any idea of where he might be. The police had been unable to turn over any new information about Josh's whereabouts despite the fact that they had received several anonymous phone calls from a woman urging them to compare this case with a stalking case that had been opened about six years before. If Josh's mother's grip on the world loosened when her son vanished, it broke when Veronica died. Which, if y'all are so confused, y'all just all need to go and listen to the rest of the story. <laughs> yeah, I was like broke his arm oh yeah that's right yeah you gotta gotta listen there's so many loose loose ends i refreshed
1: my memory before this episode yeah it's so good
2: she had seen many people die at the hospital but there's no amount of desensitization that can fortify a person against the death of her own child she would visit veronica twice a day since she was recuperating at a different hospital once before her shift and once afterward On the day Veronica died, her mother was late leaving work, and by the time she arrived at her daughter's hospital, Veronica had already passed. This was too much for her, and over the next couple of weeks, she became increasingly more unstable. She would often wander outside yelling for both Josh and Veronica to come home, and there were several several times her husband found her wandering around my old neighborhood in the middle of the night, half-clothed and frantically searching for her son and daughter. Due to his wife's mental deterioration, Josh's dad could no longer travel for work and began talking, began taking construction jobs that were less well-paying so he could be Mm -hmm. closer to home. When they began expanding my old neighborhood more, about three months after Veronica died, Josh's dad applied for every position and was hired. He was qualified to lead the build sites, but he took a job as a laborer helping to build frames and clean up the sites and whatever else was needed. He even took odd jobs that would occasionally come up, mowing lawns, repairing fences, anything that keep from traveling, they began clearing the woods. Wow, oh, I just did a run-on sentence, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no, no, you're fine.
2: fine I didn't even notice. They began clearing the woods in the area next to the tributary
0: tri-
2: tri- <laughs> <laughs> tributary. Tributary to transform the land into inhabitable property. Josh's dad was at, was tasked with the responsibility of leveling the recently deforested lot, and this job guaranteed him at least several weeks of work. On the third day, he arrived at a spot that he could not level. Each time he'd drive over it, it would remain lower than all the surrounding land. Frustrated, he got off the machine to survey the area. He was tempted to simply pack more dirt into the depression but he knew that would only be an aesthetic and temporary solution. He had worked construction for years and knew that root systems from large trees that had been recently cut down would often decompose, leaving weaknesses in the soil that would manifest as weaknesses in the foundations above. He weighed his options and elected to dig a little with a shovel in case the problem was shallow enough to fix without needing a machine that would have to be brought over from another site. And as my mother described where this was, I knew I had been at that spot both before the soil was broken and before it had been filled in. I felt a tightening in my chest. He dug a small hole about three feet down until his shovel collided with something hard. Mm. He smashed his shovel against it repeatedly in an attempt to gauge the thickness of the root and the density of the network, and when suddenly, his shovel plunged through the resistance. Oh, no. Confused, he dug the hole wider. After about half an hour of excavating, he found himself standing on a brown blanket-covered box about seven feet long and four feet wide. Our minds work to avoid dissonance. If we hold a a belief strongly enough, our minds will forcibly reject conflicting evidence so that we can maintain the integrity of our understanding of the world. Up until the very next moment, despite what all sense would have indicated despite the fact that some small but suffocated part of him understood what was supporting his weight. This man believed. He knew his son was still alive. My mom received a call at 6 p.m. She knew who it was, but she couldn't understand what he was saying. But what she did comprehend made her leave immediately. Down here! Now! Son! Please, God! When she arrived, she found Josh's dad sitting perfectly still with his back to the hole. He was holding the shovel so tightly it seemed that it might snap, and he was staring straight ahead with eyes that looked as lifeless as a shark's. He wouldn't respond to any of her words and only reacted when she tried to gently take the shovel from him. He dragged his eyes slowly to hers and just said, I don't understand. He repeated that as if he had forgotten all those other words and my mother could hear him still muttering as, it, as she walked past him to look in the hole. She told me she wished she had gouged her eyes out before she faced downward into the crater and told her that I knew what she was about to say and that she need to continue. I looked at her face and it was expressing a, lo- a look of such intense despair that it caused my stomach to turn. I realized that she had known of this for almost ten years and was hoping that she'd never have to tell me. As a result, she never came up with a proper arrangement of words to describe what she saw, and as I sit here, I met with the same difficulty of articulation. Josh was dead. His face was sunken in and contorted in such a way that it was as if the misery and hopelessness of all the world had been transferred to it. The assaulting smell of decay rose from the crypt, and my mother had to cover her nose and mouth to keep from vomiting. His skin was cracked, almost crocodilian, and a. stream of blood that had followed these lines had dried on his face after pulling and staining the wood around his head. His eyes lay half littled, facing straight up. She said by the look of him, he had not been long dead, and thus time had not brought the mercy of degradation to erase the pain and terror that was now etched into his face. She said it was as if he had fixed his gaze right on her, his open mouth offering an all too late plea for help. The rest of his body, however, wasn't visible. Someone else was covering it. He was large and lay face down on top of Josh, and as my mother's mind stretched itself to take in what her eyes were attempting to tell her, she became aware of the significance of the way in which he laid. He was holding Josh. Their legs lay frozen by death but entangled like vines in some lush tropical forest. One arm rested under Josh's neck only to wrap around his body so that they might lay closer still. As the sun passed through the trees, its light became reflected by something pinned to Josh's shirt. My mother stooped to one knee and raised the collar of her shirt over her nose so that she might block out the smell. When she saw what had caught the sun, her legs abandoned her and she nearly fell into the tomb. It was a picture. It was a picture of me as a child. She staggered backwards, gasping and trembling, and collided with Josh's father, who still sat facing away from the hole. She understood why he had called her, but she could not bring herself to tell him what she had kept from everyone for all those years. Josh's family never knew about the night I had woken up in the woods. She knew now that she should have told them, but to tell him now would help nothing. As she sat there resting her back against Josh's dad's, he spoke. I can't tell my wife. I can't tell her that her little boy... His speech staggered in fits as he pressed his wet face into his dirt-caked hands. She couldn't bear it. After a moment, he stood up, still shuddering and lumbered toward the grave. With a final sob, he stepped down into the coffin. Josh's dad was a big man, but not as big a man as the man in the box. He grabbed the back of the man's collar and pulled hard. It was as if he intended to throw the man out of the grave in a singular motion, but the collar ripped and the body fell back down on top of his son. "'You motherfucker!' He grabbed the man by the shoulders and heaved him back until he was off of Josh and sat awkwardly but upright against the wall of the grave. He looked at the man and staggered back a step. "'Oh, God! Oh, God, no! No! No, no, please, God! Please, God, no!' In a struggling but powerful movement, he lifted and pushed the corpse completely out of the ground and they both heard the sound of glass rolling against wood. It was a bottle. He handed it to my mother. It was ether.
1: Hmm.
2: Oh, Josh, he sobbed. My boy, my baby boy. Why is there so much blood? What did he do to you? As my mother looked at the man who now lay facing upward, she realized she was facing the person who had haunted our lives for over a decade. She had imagined him so many times, always evil and always terrifying, and the cries of Josh's father seemed to confirm her worst fears. But as she stared at his face, she thought that this didn't look like who she imagined. This was just a man. As she looked at his frozen expression, it actually looked serene. The corners of his lips were turned up one slightly. She saw that he was smiling. Not the expected smile of a maniac from a film of horror stories. Not the smile of a demon or the smile of a fiend. This was the smile of contentment or satisfaction. It was a smile of bliss. It was a smile of love. As she looked down from his face, she saw a tremendous wound on his neck from where the skin had been ripped out. She was at first relieved when she realized that the blood had not been Josh's. Perhaps he had suffered less, but this comfort was short-lived as she realized just how wrong she was. She brought a hand up to her mouth and whispered, almost as if she was afraid to remind the world what had happened. They were alive. Josh must have bent in the man's neck in an attempt to get free, and although the man had died, Josh couldn't move him. I began crying when I thought of how long he might have laid there. She looked through the man's pockets for some kind of identification, but she only found a piece of paper. On it was a drawing of a man, holding hands with a small boy, and next to the boy were initials. My initials. I'd like to think that she was remembering the part of the story inaccurately, but I'll never know for sure. As Josh's father carried his son out of the grave, my mom slid the piece of paper into her pocket. He kept muttering that his son's hair had been dyed, She saw that it had. It was now dark brown, and she noticed that he was dressed oddly. His clothes were far too small. After Josh's Josh's dad delicately laid his boy on the soft dirt, he began gently pressing his hands against his son's pants to fill his pockets. He heard a crinkle. Carefully, he retrieved a folded piece of paper from Josh's pocket. He looked at it, but was vexed. Absently, he handed it to my mother, but she didn't recognize it either. I asked her what it was. She told me it was a map, and I felt my heart shatter. He was finishing the map. That must have been his idea for my birthday present. I found myself strangely hoping that he hadn't been taken while expanding it, as if that would somehow matter now. She heard Josh's father grunt and looked to see him pushing the man's body back into the ground. As he walked back toward the machine that had found this spot for him, he put his hand on a canister of gasoline and paused with his back toward my mother. You should go. I'm so sorry. It's not your fault. I did this. You can't think like that. There is was nothing. He interjected flatly, almost with no emotion at all. About a month ago, a guy apro- approached me as I was cleaning up the site on the new development a block over. He asked me if I wanted to make some extra money, and because my wife's not working right now, I accepted. He told me that some kids had dug a bunch of holes on his property, and he offered me a $100 to fill them in. He said that he wanted to take some pictures for the insurance company first, but if I came back after 5 p.m. the next day, that would be fine. I thought this guy was a sucker, since I knew clearing that lot was coming up to someone. I knew clearing that lot was coming up so someone would have had to do it anyway, but I needed the money, so I agreed. I didn't think he even had a hundred dollars, but he put the bill in my hand, and I did the job the next day. I've been so exhausted that I didn't even think about it after it was done. I didn't think about it until today when I pulled that same guy off of my son. He pointed at the grave, and his emotions started to push through as he broke into a sob. He paid me $100 so that I would bury him with my boy. It was as if saying it aloud forced him to accept what had happened and he collapsed onto the ground in tears. My mother could think of nothing to say and stood there in silence for what felt like a lifetime. She finally asked what he would do about Josh. His final resting place won't be here with this monster. As she looked back when she reached her car, she could see black smoke billowing and diffusing against the amber sky and she hoped against all hope that Josh's parents would be okay. I left my mom's house without saying much else. I told her that I loved her and that I would talk to her soon, but I don't know what soon means for us. I got into my car and left. Sorry. I understood now why the events of my childhood had stopped years ago. As an adult, I now saw the connections that were lost on a child who tends to see the world in snapshots rather than a sequence. I thought about Josh. I loved him then, and I love him even still. I miss him more now that I know I'll never see him again, and I find myself wishing that I had hugged him the last time I saw him. I thought about Josh's parents and how much they had lost and how quickly that loss had come. They don't know about my connection to any of this, but I could never look them in the eyes now. I thought about Veronica. I'd only really come to know her later in my life, but for those few brief weeks, I think I had really loved her. I thought about my mother. She had tried so hard to protect me and was stronger than I would ever be. I try not to think about the man and what he had done with Josh for more than two years. Mostly, I just thought about Josh. Sometimes I wish that he never sat across from me that day in kindergarten, that I'd never known what it was like to have a real friend. Sometimes I like to dream that he's in a better place, but that's only a dream, and I know that. The world is a cruel place made crueler still by man. There would be no justice for my friend, no final confrontation, no vengeance. It had been over almost for a decade for everyone but me now. I miss you, Josh. I'm sorry you chose me, but I'll always cherish my memories of you. We were explorers. We were adventurers. We were friends. Mm. Yeah. Sorry I didn't
1: make you cry. I'm so emo. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. No, that story always does. Yeah. That story always does. Ugh. Oh. oh. Uh. <laughs> Blame oh. his fucking teacher. God, I'm so I you know. never know. Yeah, be sorry, your teacher won't send a balloon for real. Oh, so fucking creepy. <sighs> <sighs> All right, let's try. Um, yeah, no, if, if you haven't listened to or read Pin Pal, please listen to or read Pin Pal.
1: Yes, I recommend listening to No Sleep if you like to be spookied. Yeah. Um otherwise if you just Look want the facts, you. you can read it. Because um, to me, like listening to it was way scarier oh, yeah. than reading it. Oh yeah. So if you're easily scared, I would not recommend the podcast, No Sleep. If you <laughs> like to be frightened to death, go for it. <laughs> Who's next? <sighs> Look,
2: there we go. Yep. What? Renee is losing her
0: mind. I'm trying to go for the 25-hour diner smile.
1: I don't like it. I, like
0: it. I can't. I'm, I have a very small mouth. Can't do it. Or a very round one. Mm-mm.
1: All right. <laughs> Liz, what do you have next? So, uh, this one is pretty exciting. Um, It's called The Body Farm. No.
0: (gasps) Is this about the body farm?
1: I mean, maybe. Okay. I'm down. Uh, Okay, part one. I'm not a guy who gets so not the kind who keeps his head in the sand, if you know what I mean. When something doesn't feel right, it doesn't feel right, period. I acknowledge that most of the bad things that happen in life can be blamed on people or the world around us but i also believe that there are things that fall outside those two categories at least until we prove otherwise like what happened at the body farm Mm -hmm. i've wanted to be a writer ever since i was a kid so forgive me if i get too flowery sometimes as i'm sure you know writing doesn't pay the bills and despite my dream of earning a living i've always needed a day job to get me by through the father of a friend, I ended up getting trained and certified as an unarmed security guard straight out of high school, which I did all the way through college. It was easy, and the money was good enough for a while, but eventually I looked for something with a future in it. So long as my writing wasn't taking off, I figured I might as well build a career. After a long search, I got a job at one of the major banks, one of which I'd rather not say. Mm. Six years I spent working my ass off, climbing my way up the ranks. That was until five weeks ago when they decided that they had too many branches open on the East Coast, as well as too many employees working those branches. So I got the boot. No severance, no fanfare, no apology. I was out on the street, and as soon as I found out, no one was hiring. When things started to get desperate, I paid a visit to this employment agency up the block from my house. I've never liked the guy who runs it, but as I said, times are desperate. So I walked in and signed up. They didn't seem too hopeful when I asked about other bank jobs, but when they saw the security guard experience on my resume, they perked up. As it turns out, they had an overnight temp guard position they were having trouble filling. Needless to say, I was hesitant to take what I believed was a step backward. Not to down-talk or discredit guard work in any way, it doesn't fit the direction I'm trying to go in at the moment. The point is, I didn't want to take the gig when a man's gotta eat. My choice was helped by the rate they were paying, which was higher, on the higher end of what guards usually make. Hello, red flag. But it's fine. That was me, not him. <laughs> <laughs> Against my better judgment, I, like, I accepted. Hmm. They made a few phone calls, wrote down an address, and sent me on my way. It's on the water is the only detail they gave me. Around 5 o'clock, I arrived at the address they'd written on the card, which turned out was a boat launch to get over to an island, on which was the actual gig. I'll call it Twain Island, since I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to be talking about it in the first place, even though its actual name is one I never heard despite growing up close by. After a confusing exchange with the older guy who ran the dog, he told me something which very nearly made me turn around and get in my car. I need to see your phone, he said. Then he said, if that's a camera, I need to take it. I made a joke like, what's on that island, the Queen of England? But he wasn't amused. I argued with him, but in the end, I handed it over. A few minutes later, an even older guy came and got me and took me onto the boat. Since it was only the two of us, I had no idea what I had gotten myself into. I tried to make small talk. He wasn't talkative, but as we approached the island, he made the second sketchy comment of the day. This one in the form of a question. Have you ever been to one of these farms? I told him i had been to plenty of farms, to which he said, not like this when you have it. I had no idea what he was talking about, but by then we were already pulling up to the dock that stuck out from the rocky shore. First of all, just a little pause here. I'm jumping (laughs) off the boat and swimming back to my car Mm
0: -hmm. yeah
1: like yeah (laughs) no absolutely not i would have been like is it a wee farm and if they would have been like no okay (laughs) see you later do you have any like you know scuba flippers because i'm out
0: yeah no Uh, job Mm -hmm. as soon as they take your phone away that's when you're like oh okay so yeah no thank you i've changed my mind
1: calling it a farm And they're paying, Uh like, double, and they've had trouble filling the position. Get out. Get out. All right. Given that I had nowhere else to go, I headed for the first building. Halfway across the lawn was a sign that read Island Forensic Anthropology Facility. They were fours I was familiar with separately, but together lost their meaning. As I contemplated exactly what they meant, a young guy wearing a guard uniform came around the side of the building and waved me down. Sorry. (sighs) (laughs) I heard the boat, he said. He introduced himself as Eric and handed me a walkie-talkie. He explained that other than a few computers with an internet connection, all communication on the island was done by old school means. In case of emergency, way? they... S- huh? Old, old school, school means? Like old school um, ways. Mm. Sorry. Okay. No, you're fine. In case of emergency, they even had a two-way radio set up. I asked him why I wasn't allowed to bring my cell phone and he said it was so no pictures ended up fr- on the internet, which I'd heard from a friend who did guard work at a high-end jewelry manufacturer, so I guess it made some sense. But I still didn't know what the hell was going on. What? I point-blank asked him, what is going on? (laughs) All he said was, come on, I'll show you. We walked not into, but around, the decent-sized building, past the second smaller building, and into the woods beyond. No. Bye. No. No. Done. This whole story is like, stop. Go back. Stop. Stop. Mm -hmm. Go back. (laughs) Eric said something about the island being the alleged site of buried pirate treasure, but to be honest, I wasn't paying much attention. There was a strong smell in the air, pungent and sweet and downright awful, which I found impossible to ignore. Eric noticed my face and casually said, have you ever smelled a dead body before? (laughs) Uh I said, my head no. He said, you'll never forget it now. At that point, we came into a clearing in the woods where the foul odor really ramped up. I've always had a strong stomach, but even this was excessive. I felt a lump form at the back of my throat. There were two people, one male, one female, both roughly college-aged and wearing similar gray coats, standing over what looked like long, low cages made of chicken wire. As we walked closer, I could see dark forms in the cages like piles of trash. The girl looked over at us and nodded politely, but the guy didn't bother. She was pretty, and he looked like a bug. <laughs> it wasn't until we were right <laughs> on the top of the cages that I realized what they held. First of all, if somebody ever told me that I looked like a bug, I think I would just cry. I think he was God mad was because, bug because bug the guy bug didn't bug.
0: because the guy ignored them. So he was He's like, like, "That she could." He
1: was be really cute, cute, but he looked like a bug. Like a bug. He ignored us, and he looked like a bug. Like, what does that mean? Hmm.
0: All
1: right. Anyways, I have to interject, otherwise I will scare the shit out of myself. (laughs) The first body I saw, in fact, have ever seen, was a woman's. Her skin was impossibly waxy with large patches of discoloration as if the wax had been burned. She looked like someone had sprinkled rice across her like a new bride. Unfortunately, it wasn't rice. The magnets crawled on her legs and pooled in the crevices of her neck. Her surprisingly white teeth grinned up at me, exposed, and her belly was inflated like a birthday balloon. My mouth watered from the rising feel of vomit, but I managed to keep it in check. He introduced the two as Bernard and Terry, interns from the Name Removed Institute, and said there were two more wandering around somewhere, as well as the man in charge. A scientist by the name of Dr. Christensen. Terry could see I was bothered, so she was nice enough to finally explain what the fuck was going on. We study human decomposition, she said. The goal was to better understand the process in order to help, among other things, police determine more accurate times of death in a variety of settings. This seems like a very strange way to be Dexter, but... I looked at five or six other cages, which she explained were to keep birds away, and asked how many there were on the island. It varies, but it usually (laughs) hovers somewhere around 50. 50 dead bodies, one island, no cell phones, no boats. (laughs) That is the reality show I'm going to write. That's all. That's the title. That whole thing is the title of this show. (laughs) 50 dead bodies, one island, no cell phones, no boats. Welcome. (laughs)
0: Meet your true love or become part of an experiment.
1: Dear God. If you don't get married in 10 days, you're (laughs) body number 51. (laughs) Yes. All right. They said some see you laters and then Eric led me around the rest of the island. First to point out some of the other body sites, more corpses, some caged, some not, and then to perform a perimeter around the shore. He said I'd have to do at least two such rounds during my shift, Which I was already thinking about skipping. (laughs) It took about 45 minutes for us to circle back around the dock. Which I noticed was the only way onto or off of the island. Short of risking the waves crashing onto the sharp rocks around the ring of slimy garbage. Yum. By then the sun... That's me. (laughs) By then the sun was starting to set. Then he took me inside the main research building. Which I guess had been converted from a sports center dating back some 50 years. We took a quick look around the operation, and I saw the back of someone's head inside one of the rooms, but other than that, not much registered. I think by that time, my head was spinning too fast for any more info to get in. We left the main building and went to the second building, which served as our office. Eric pointed out the bathroom, the lockers, the eating area, the stocked fridge, the flashlights, and the desk with a two-way radio, which he showed me how to use. He gave me a grin and asked if I was all set. I shrugged, which was the most sincere answer I could give. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll be honest, he told me. Most guys don't last long here, especially the night shift. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) If you take out the mental part, it's the easiest job in the world. But that mental part... His voice trailed off and I knew exactly what he meant. What could be easier than making sure a bunch of stiffs stayed dead? And yet the sun was going down and I was filled completely with dread, the kind where you want to run and scream in no particular direction. Before I could articulate the thought, the sound of a a docking boat rose up, and with a nod and a few more last-minute instructions, he was gone. Next boat's at 3 a.m., he shouted from across the lawn, which seemed like a pretty important detail to be leaving for the last second. (laughs) Ahead of him were the two interns I'd met, Bernard and Terry, along with two others, Terry waved and I waved back, pretending to be unfaced. On the boat already, aside from the old man operating it, was the man whose face I couldn't make out from a distance. After the boat chugged away and made a line for land, I looked around at the dimming island, inhabited by me and fifty rotting corpses, give or take, with the wind kicking up off the ocean, and I wondered just how I ended up here. (laughs) Just a month earlier, I'd been sitting comfortably behind a desk in a warm bank. It was incredible how quickly life could shift beneath your feet. To pass the time, I had the internet, thankfully, and that got me past the first few mindless hours. Before I knew it, the clock over the door read 20 past 9. Not close enough to 3, my friend. Just saying. Not even? No. No. That's like 12 episodes of Love Island, but... Okay. (laughs) Outside it was pitch black while inside it was way too quiet, so I pulled up some music videos and let them play in the background. A huge playlist of classic rock songs as I opened a text (laughs) file. Not surprisingly, most of them had to do with zombies coming to life and attacking the living. Nothing really stuck though, and I began to have that familiar, uneasy feeling that comes whenever I try to write alone. After a few minutes, I stopped trying to fight it. I closed the file and then my eyes. I'm not sure how long I was asleep. Ugh. Sorry, I'm scared. (laughs) (laughs) What I do know is what woke me up. With my eyes still closed, I started to become aware of the sound under the music. The playlist... Still coming out of the computer speaker, which was faint but getting louder. It was far off in the island, but I could make it out as clear as anything. I know what I'm about to say sounds crazy. I really do. But I heard a woman crying. Mm -mm. Okay, I'm getting up. I'm locking the door. Okay, (laughs) in my little security (laughs) office. I'm turning up my classic rock dad playlist. And I don't fucking care who's crying out there. And this is Liz talking, not... Yeah, sorry. Hi, (laughs) it's me. (laughs) (laughs) This is me as a security guard, useless. (laughs) This is Liz being rational. (laughs) For a second, I wondered if I'd actually heard the cries or if I'd been in a dream, the way the light messes with you. But then I heard a shout, definitely that woman's pitch, and I bolted into the woods. All I could think of was that some idiot had found their way onto the island, maybe even a group of idiots, and hurt themselves on my watch. The already familiar stench came to my nose as I came into the first clearing. My flashlight picked up the metal of the cages. I stopped running. I remembered myself, where I was, and why I had locked myself in the office. Those cages, just sitting there in the dark, corpses staring at me, maggots and flies, the cries had stopped, which Mm -hmm. had me thinking either I was being pranked or worse. I did what I swore I wouldn't do, which was the job that they hired me to do. With a major amount of hesitation, I did my rounds. Either I would find the woman, I figured, or honestly could tell the doctor that I would secured the island when they found a body in the morning. Another one, that is. A new one. As I walked to the edge of the island, I formed a joke in my head about how they could leave the dead woman where they found her and just add her to the guest list. The joke always ended with me saying, you're welcome. (laughs) i'll be honest i didn't do a full perimeter but i did do most of one (laughs) other than half of a hollowed out horseshoe shoe crab i didn't find anything so i cut back to the first clearing i walked slowly in case i came across more body sites especially the uncaged kind which i didn't want to stumble over in the dark despite the yellow flags that marked them Mm -hmm. the smell would warn me first except for the really long gone ones needless to say i was relieved when i reached the clearing The beam of my flashlight caught the top of the cages as I walked between them, using them as a guide back to the office without really focusing on them. For some reason, I still don't understand. Maybe because my eyes picked up something different in the dark, or maybe I felt a change in the air. I shone the light onto the last cage, the first I'd seen a few hours earlier, where the bloated woman had grinned up at me. My feet stopped. So did my heart. What my flashlight saw, what I saw, changed me forever. And I know it sounds crazy. I know it does. But her cage was empty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was Never.
1: how for. <laughs> I can't. Okay. I got in closer to get a better look because there is no way what I was seeing was real. But I was horrified to find that it was. The body was gone. The only thing left of it was a long patch of dead grass. A puddle of half-dried fluids and strips of what looked like leather, but I knew it wasn't. The cage around it was left exactly where I would seen it. Only the body had disappeared. Are you guys ready? No. 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 I'm not either. (laughs) As I stared down at the empty cage, my walkie-talkie crackled in my pocket. It made me jump a bit at the sudden noise in the night, and I fished it out of my pocket where I'd forgotten I put it during the perimeter sweep. But if the first sound made me jump, the second made my skin crawl. Mm -mm. No, no. A woman was whispering on the other end. I turned the volume up and pressed the speaker to my ear to hear better. This is Liz speaking, you fucking dumbass. Okay. (laughs) This is Liz. Speaking, go back to your fucking guard room. This is Liz. Speaking, the woman's in there. Swim. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The words were too low to make out. Only the distinctly female tone, the same as the one who had called out from somewhere in the woods. Nervous, I brought the walkie-talkie to my mouth and pressed the button on the side. Hello? (laughs) I tried to sound like I was in charge, but it wasn't convincing. I let go of the button and brought the speaker back to my ear, straining to hear the whispers. All I heard was a woman's high pitched and delirious laugh.
0: No. No. <laughs>
1: I'm scaring myself. <laughs> okay. Instinct took over and I ran. I ran away from the cages and out of the clearing, into the woods and out of them again until I was running between the two buildings and back into the office, slamming the door shut and locking it. You didn't look around. That was dumb. My pulse throbbed in my neck and I tried to catch myself with my hands on the desk, taking big great breaths of air. Mm -hmm. Breaths of air. Stale air. Not just stale air, but wretched. Wretched. Hickly, sweet, and pungent. The smell of those bodies had somehow moved into the guard's office, even though none of the sights Mm. were anywhere near it. It was Mm. then, as I pushed myself up off the desk, the thought of that woman's missing body came back, the voice on the radio, the whispers and a laugh. It was just then that I realized not just air had gotten in the building. I looked at my hand. A smudge of something black was on my palm. There was a matching one on the table. What? That was part one. (sighs) I hate you. (laughs) That was... Oh, there's your face. Get <laughs> me,
0: you're so proud of yourself. I
1: don't like it. Well, there's ten parts, so go for it, yeah. start with All of them. And this person does claim that it's not creepy pasta, and they did actually work for something like this. Oh.
0: we still have way more creepy pasta. Well, we have more creepy pasta to do.
1: Yeah. So next time, if you guys like that, just let me know. We can do body farm part two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. <laughs> that was um, wild. Although it's not so far fetched, I really feel like there is a possibility that somewhere in like Massachusetts or Rhode Island or some bullshit like that, that that's like a thing.
0: There is a real body farm.
1: Uh, I want to say it's Alabama. Okay, well, Alabama is a body farm. Yeah. There's not
2: one in Alabama, why
1: not? Oh, there's more than one.
0: There's four. Okay, well, I I can't think about it. Okay. I only know because I read, um... I think it's called Death by Mary Roach. It's all about what happens to your body.
1: (laughs) Brittany. Brittany, do you have one more for us?
0: I have two more, but they're both super short. Um, one of them is pretty. Sc- one of them is really scary. One of them is less scary. Okay, Which we'll one would you? Those are
1: really scary first because after okay. we end this, I still have to eat my dinner that got here two hours ago, <laughs> and it's dark.
0: Okay, so this one I actually found because there is an abandoned church in my near me. <laughs> Liz is gone. <laughs>
1: Hold on. I don't know where I want to sit, but I know I need more lights.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. So there's an aban- I found out there's an abandoned church uh, near where y'all live, and um, I want to explore it. So, I found okay, wait, this. Don't take, of- don't
1: take me after you tell me the story. I'm telling you that.
0: Okay. So, this is, this is just called A Guide to Exploring Abandoned Churches. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that sounds If lame, you go alone... Okay. You- just wait if you go alone don't bring a flashlight you'll see things you don't want to don't bring groups bigger than 12 bring water and some snacks but no wine if you have to sleep there sleep in the sanctuary but not on a pew if you try to read the hymnal the words won't be english anymore the bible will be blank until you confess if you see someone praying at the altar don't approach them if they approach you don't talk to them leave immediately. If you hear the organ playing while you're in the basement, know that your time is running out. If it plays while you're in the sanctuary, your time is up. Take whatever you want, but if you find that one of your possessions is missing, don't look for it. Let them have it. It's not worth your life. If you find a rosary, don't put it on. It won't help. The water isn't holy anymore. Throwing it on the demons in the shadows won't work. Drink the wine if you wish to never leave. Don't get separated from your friends. If you spend the night, leave at sunrise. Otherwise, you'll enter another plane of reality with no way back. If you don't spend the night, leave through the doors you came in. You might look behind you after leaving and see that the church isn't there anymore. It means that they took what they wanted. Never enter the same abandoned church twice, even especially if you forgot something inside. That's a lure. On your second tour through, they will know enough about you to keep you there. Yep. Have fun. Have fun, Renee. <laughs> I'm only going through once. I'm only going to go through once. I, know what's I just go- don't
1: think that that's a viable option.
0: <laughs>
2: We're not going with you. You're going by yourself. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'll tell... FaceTime you while you're there, but like, I'm not looking. <laughs> I'll check all the hymnals. Check all the hymnals. All right.
0: Are y'all ready for the last one? Yes.
1: No, 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 no,
0: no, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> I kind of don't want to tell you guys the title. I'll tell so you guys the title. Um, Spongebob finds the Lord, not clickbait. I woke up in my pineapple under the sea. My legs I'm sorry? Him- I crawled out of my bed into my wheelchair. I wheeled down the what? stairs, greeted by the four Chipettes. Hey, said Tom Cruise in his Chipettes outfit. What? How did you sleep? Fine, said SpongeBob SquarePants with a tear in his eyes. He was lying. Tom what? Cruise raised his hand to comfort the small sponge. Hey, it's gonna be okay, he said, but he was wrong. Suddenly, Theodore busted into the door. He had a black suit on with a black tie and a leather-bound Bible in his right hand. SpongeBob, SpongeBob, he proclaimed. I have found the Lord. Brittany tucked her hair behind her little chipmunk ear. Who is the Lord, she asked. Is that an off-brand of Gucci?
1: Quiet now, thou...
0: my sent God. by the Lord Satan to taint my soul and drag me to the outer reaches of the nine rings of hell, Theodore cried, holding the Bible aloft. May the Lord's light touch you and heal whatever skankiness you have left in you, you whore. Calm what? down, Elmer, said Tom Cruise. My name is Theodore, you ignorant slut. What? said the small chipmunk man, waving his Bible belligerently. Don't confuse me for my wench of a wife. Jeanette gasped and clutched her hand to her rodent titties. I thought I was your main host. (laughs) This sparked a fight between the three biological chipettes because they had all been spreading their legs for his sweet chipmunk chode, his chode monk. Meanwhile, the fourth chipette, Tom Cruise, was thinking of SpongeBob lovingly as he fingered the the sponge. SpongeBob had all of Tom Cruise's oo-woos. Sponge SpongeBob noticed the fingering. He liked it, but he couldn't let anyone know he was gay. S- Stop it, Baca, said the sponge with a pout as he looked up at Tom Cruise's fucking eyes. Simon and Alvin entered the room, holding each other's asses. Hey, guys, Alvin <laughs> smiled. Guess he's getting hitched. The word threw the Bible at his brother's face. You couldn't. You defile gods will by seeking refuge in each other's beds. Not only are you brother, but both men. How dare you? Simon <laughs> grew into a fit of rage at seeing his soon-to-be-heavy injured like this. Simon curb-stomped Theodore. All three of the biological chip-heads gasped in unison. Be quiet, you heterosexual midget. You're just jealous I get laid more often than you do. Jeanette screamed. Uh, uh, oh, well, my boy. Him hurt. Theodore was silenced by the gay agenda. Alvin looked down at his younger brother bleeding on the floor. I'm telling dad you're being homophobic. He quaked in his brother's letter. No, please, Alvin, I'm begging. I'll do everything. Alvin looked down at his brother coldly, then perish. He called Dave and told him about the homophobia of his brother. Dave sentenced Theodore to a thousand years of groundedness. The three biological chipettes all wept, for their sweet chode monk was no more. In the background, as the spiral of events happened, Tom Cruise and his alter personality, Ted Cruise, was looking (laughs) at Spongebob with his holes and wheelchair and groaned heavily. Both these things cater heavily towards the two things Ted slash Tom Cruise are into. He had produced grapes from his pocket and was sensuously feeding them to Spongebob Squarepants. The grapes were vaguely warm and had lint, but Spongebob thought it was a sweet gesture and blushed as he swallowed the grapes whole. He was still trying to convince oh
1: everyone.
0: Nobody believed him. <clears throat> Dwayne The Rock Johnson, wearing a thong, what? in the room. His head is strangely large. He is God. He rests his hand on SpongeBob's shoulder. I have brought a message, my disciple. Stop simping, he says in a very bad country accent. On God, asks the sponge. On God, The Rock says in his normal voice. Ted slash Tom Cruise was very disappointed to hear this. He wanted to be the one Spongebob was simping for. God had entered the void yeah. Theodore in a little bit. Theodore is now dead, his soul being tormented by gay demons in hell. Spongebob gazed towards Ted slash Tom Cruise. He thought about God's words and curled his hands into fists and rested them on his paralyzed legs. Stop simping? No, he loved Tom slash Ted Cruise and would not stop simping. In fact, he would simp even more. He made a plan to fight God. That was not a threat, but a promise. Tom slash Ted Cruz, you are my senpai. I, I sent for you and none else. Tom- Ted slash Tom Cruz gasped I- <clears throat> eyes, tearing up. Oh, spongebob coon. They kiss passionately. Ted slash Tom Cruz holding the sponge close, fingers brushing against his hole. Senpai, I need your help. Anything for you, SpongeBob. I need to fight God. Say no more. Tom slash Ted Cruz gave SpongeBob a cane. Here you go, my love. Not just any cane, a candy cane. God is allergic to peppermint. Spongebob was pushed in the wheelchair towards God. Ted slash Tom Cruise was pushing it, and he walked as he pushed the wheelchair. Spongebob pointed the cane at God and then stood up from the wheelchair. The power of simping allowed Spongebob to walk. He, Naruto, ran at God. God laughed. Foolish mortal, I have the power of God and anime on my side.
1: Oh my god. (laughs) Yes, said Spongebob, but
0: I don't give a fuck. Ted slash... Tom Cruise no longer likes Spongebob because Spongebob wasn't a wheelchair anymore, which was his kink. S- Spongebob beat God's teleports backwards with the candy cane. John Cena awakens it in the middle of the night. He is Jesus Christ. His dad needs him. He teleports to the void fight. Spongebob beats his knees. Spongebob is now God. He collapses because he's paralyzed again. The end.
1: What? The end. Fuck. <laughs> You to me. Uh,
0: I'm Why really sorry. I'm here. I don't remember how I found that, but as soon as I found that I was like, I have to. I have to. Why,
1: <laughs> Why do I even come here? Cause you love us. I mean, <laughs> okay why <laughs> okay kids well i'm sorry about that last one
0: uh please stay i promise <laughs> i promise sometimes it's more it's better than this this is just a fun bonus episode
1: yeah let me tell you that i'm going to take away her internet researching privileges so i'll guarantee that it'll be better than this <laughs> Well, if you asked for it kids you got it kids you got that pasta and boy was it creepy
0: yes a lot of it was creepy i'm very creeped out i keep checking in my camera to make sure there's not like a ghost in the corner that's why yeah. i turned the
1: light on because i literally was like absolutely the fuck not someone's <laughs> ready to turn my bedroom into a diner and send me off into the <laughs> void scalped Yeah, no. We'll be on Skype for like two more episodes max, Mm -hmm. and then we'll be back. And more than ever,
0: it'll be great. But for now, stay inside. Wash your damn hands. Don't talk to on people. People. Yes, stay. If you can, stay inside. If you can't, wash your hands a ton. But
1: in the meantime. Just uh follow us on Instagram at conspiracy Um, I think during this time we're gonna start posting some like quizzes and things and conspiracy boys and you just let us know what you want to see and we'll give it to you. So we gotta go. Okay, love you, you do guys.
0: That. Don't go into abandoned churches. Don't do that. Alright guys, bye! Bye! Like anybody, I
1: would like to live. I, you, I, I just want to do God's will. And I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land.